Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Somewhat Sustainable podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Cressy Westling from Elvis and Cressy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm here with Cressy Weisling from Elvis and Cressy. So, Cressy, thank you so much for for sort of joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've been very familiar with Elvis and Cressy for for quite a while. So, yeah, I wonder how you're doing. How's how's your week been so far? Oh, so far the week has been it has been good. I mean, we've had some 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 ups and some downs. My partner and I unfortunately have a bit of COVID going around, but we um, we can keep working just because we can manage to work at two meters apart and you know chatting through the windows and things like that. So progress is still being made. Yeah, yeah, and 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 how are you feeling with COVID? I'm I'm obviously super sorry to hear that you've you've you know you managed to catch it, but how are you how are you feeling so far? So far, it's it's all right. It's just like a cold, and I'm sure it will pass in the next. Uh, well, optimistically, hopefully in the next 24 hours, because because there's a, a busy few days ahead. Yeah, fingers crossed. I know. Uh, I know. Obviously, all the the rules and everything are changing, and I don't want to get too political, but obviously. Hopefully, you know, in the next couple of days, you'll be able to sort of leave your isolation, start testing negative, and uh, yeah, get on with the get on with the rest of your week. Hopefully, um, so I guess um, to to sort of kind of kick things off, really, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, um, and also a little bit more about Elvis and Cressy, the business that you founded? Sure. Um, so I, I mean, we can start with me because I'm older than the business, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in Western Canada. Um, beautiful place. I had an amazing childhood where I got a lot of opportunities to go camping and spend time in the Rocky Mountains. And when I was 16, I got a scholarship to finish high school in Hong Kong. So I suddenly found myself moving by myself across to the other side of the world. Um, and it was just an amazing school filled with uh, unbelievable people, many of whom are still some of my best friends, um, where the idea was, it's called a United World College, but the idea was if you bring people together at a young age from around the world, that maybe, maybe international education can lead to world peace. It's quite an optimistic set of goals. I like um, that though. But it was an, yeah, it, it, it was certainly an incredible experience. And after that, I think, you know, if, if I wasn't already of an activist mindset, that certainly set me off on an interesting trajectory. But activists, not in the sense that I like to protest things. I just like to do things differently. If I see that something is wrong, I generally won't complain about it being wrong. I'll do something to fix it. And that's, I suppose, why I gravitated towards business and certainly towards social enterprise um, in, in the way that I have. Because, you know, I in my early career, I worked in an investment company. Um, I set up my first business in my early 20s. That was another environmental business. But pretty much all of my work is an entrepreneurial response, let's say, to problems in the world. And Elvis and Cressy, I guess, was born out of out of yeah who who I was and who my partner is and what we wanted to change in the world when I first moved to the UK in 2004 I had some time on my hands I guess and I got to explore landfill sites and waste transfer stations and I learned that in that year 100 million tons of material went to landfill 
And I don't know about you, but but 100 million tons is just an inconceivable amount. It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, you can't picture it. You don't know what it is. I mean, how many buses is that? How many blue whales? How many O2 arenas? We don't know. We don't know what it is. So I thought this was kind of crazy to landfill an inconceivable amount of material on a tiny island. Where was it going? It does seem crazy. I'm guessing that some of it isn't necessarily kept within the UK and perhaps it's shipped abroad to to get rid of some of that waste, is it? Yeah, certainly that's one of the scandals that's coming out now is that we send plastic waste to as far away as Malaysia and in Turkey. We send clothing waste to West Africa. And all of it's inappropriate. You know, if you break down what goes to landfill into its constituent parts, even down to the molecular level, all of this material has value. All of it should be precious to us. All of it should be cherished. And if we had an effective circular economy where everything was in a perpetual state of either use or of being rescued and recycled, that would be fantastic. But we don't have that materials utopia yet. What we have is chaos and a mess. And when you go to a landfill site, you see that. And you see some things that that you can kind of understand why they're there. You know, burst bin bags filled with nappies. Nobody wants to deal with that. But you also see materials coming to a landfill site that are pristine. You know, we talk about single-use plastics, but a lot of the material that ends up in landfill is something that's never been used. It might be an industrial offcut. It might be the end of a piece of plywood from a construction site. It might be a half of a, you know, it's, it's just inappropriate what we send to landfill. Most of it is because the landfill fees are so low that effectively our, our environment is subsidizing a lack of creativity on behalf of you know, citizens and businesses. So for us, Elvis and Cressy was a way to respond to that, a way to, to, to take something that was negative, take something that was abandoned, turn it into something absolutely beautiful and wonderful and help people to love waste the way that I do. And it was great that we found uh, fire hose was our first material. That's the material that really launched the business. We, we discovered that fire hoses, once they are too damaged to repair are decommissioned. And that means they go to landfill because there is no industrial way to recycle them. It's too much of a niche waste for that. And we thought we could do something better. We thought we could cherish that material. We could turn it into something great and we could create a whole new market for it. And that's, that's what we've done for the past 16 going on 17 years. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot that kind of goes into this and, and obviously your, your passion for the business is kind of deep rooted in being exposed to, you know, unnecessary waste. And you kind of touched on, um, circularity there. Um, do you think that like circular economy in terms of, um, actual raw materials is, is something which is achievable or, is it something that's kind of like an ideal and maybe we're going to struggle to get there? Oh, no, it's totally achievable. Nature does it all the time. You know, we we live within a natural system where there's a water cycle, where there is a cycle of decomposition and recomposition, you know, fueled by photosynthesis and the sun and fungi. And why can't we emulate that? 
why instead are we inspired by linear capitalists that just want to extract well, materials from the ground and then money from people and, and have all of that flowing in one direction. Uh, the circular economy is very possible, but it does require a shift in incentives. It requires a shift in thinking. It requires uh, designers to think about death when they're, when they're designing something. You know, if you're coming up with new paints, for example, if you're like, right, I'm going to come up with a paint company. You can't just say, right, how many, how am I going to get this color? What kind of chemistry? What kind of acrylics, macromolecules? What can I put in this to achieve this color? If you want a circular economy paint company, you have to think, is what going in, can what is going in come out in a way that we can access all of those materials and raw molecules again? And it means that designers have to collaborate with scientists. It means we have to step out of our silos. It means largely that we're going to have to change the tax system because right now there isn't a level playing field. You know, I, I produce in a circular way, but I have to charge my customers the same level of VAT as a company that produces in a linear way. If we change these tax incentives, then I think we could, uh, we could certainly address some of the problems. I mean, right now, a lot of fossil fuels are subsidized which is crazy because it's a very linear thing. It is super crazy. It comes out of the ground. It goes into, uh, you know, production for energy, whether that's into a car, whether that's, you know, gas for heating or, you know, into electrics. It's, it kind of never gets, never gets reused. It just causes, yeah, more, more pollution, more heating. And yeah, so there's, there's no real sort of circularity to that. But what you're saying there is. There can be, uh, we, you know, if we, we, renewable energy is circular, particularly if the renewable energy that you're obtaining is, uh, comes from a wind turbine that's made with materials that at the end of life can be recycled into new wind turbines, right? So it, it is circular. It can be circular. We just have to make it so. And I think the most fascinating thing about the pandemic is that, is that there is actually a magic money tree. You know, there is a level of investment available to create dramatic shifts within society. And, and unfortunately, we, we either only spend it in a, in a crisis or, or when our backs are completely up against, uh, up against the wall. And that's not how climate change is going to play out, you know, because it's this somewhat existential threat and biodiversity loss is the same because people look out their window and they still see birds and, and they think, actually, wasn't it lovely just having a summer this year that's slightly warmer? Um, it doesn't, it doesn't translate into policy. It doesn't translate into tax changes, incentive changes and investment to create a renewably powered circular economy, which is what we need. And, and I guess everything that Elvis and I do, um, which is, you know, what Elvis and Cressy does is designed to bring that about. So our site is based in Kent. Um, we, we moved here just over a year ago. The reason we moved our business to this site, which is a farm was for numerous reasons. One, we could build a workshop using straw bales. So we could build something with a construction material that was circular and biodegradable and natural and local and can be grown in one season. Um, and is highly insulating. So this building isn't going to require a huge amount of energy to, to light or heat or cool. 
So that's fast, fascinating. The second thing we, we, we've done here is that we've installed a wetland-based sewage treatment system that requires no energy whatsoever. It's a combination of a specific type of planting and a series of small swales, ponds, which treat, which turn wastewater into fuel for specific plants. So instead of having sewage as a problem here, we'll have sewage as a yield. The solid waste becomes vermicompost. We, we, you know, you can buy tiger worms on the internet. It's just a fast producing kind of earthworm, but you can order them on the internet and you get this box of wriggly worms. And I, so the solid waste will become vermicompost, which is just fantastic uh, for soil. And the liquid waste will fuel willow production, walnut production, plums, you know, all of these kinds of things. And that's because for me, sewage isn't a problem. It's a wonderful source of nutrients. And that's something that we could do on the farm. We're also able to um, start a regenerative agriculture project. Now, regenerative agriculture is like, you know, we started talking about the circular economy 10 years ago. We started thinking about regenerative agriculture two years ago. Um, it's not new. People have been working in a regenerative way forever, but it's now, but, but it's now understood to be possibly one of the best things that we can do to redress, redress climate change. If we change our food system, if we change how we interact with the environment, we can bring back soil health. We can increase topsoil. And the, and, and by doing that, we can sequester more carbon into the soil. We can store more water in the soil and we can make our soil much more alive and biodiverse. So on, on our site here, we will never use pesticides. We will never use fertilizers. Um, we will never, um, you know, use chemicals that damage biodiversity. Instead, we build compost. Again, only using waste, organic cow manure, wood chip, and food waste. And those three primary things, when you combine them in the right way, heat up a lot. We're talking 50 to 70 degrees C. And, and it supports a microbiological uh, sort of colony, as it were, that is just, just on fire. It's just life on fire. Our we had our, at our farm very very poor degraded soil, and we want to build we want to build that up again. So we we spray with a compost tea, basically just putting microbiology back into the soil, putting life into the soil, and over time our soil will get healthier and healthier. We'll be we'll have a higher organic content. We'll have a higher carbon content. Um, we'll be able to store water better and and won't do what we see happening in traditional agriculture or green revolution agriculture, which is you lose topsoil every year to, due to erosion. Um, and you, 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 and you, you, you turn beautiful, uh, biodiverse landscapes into moonscapes because you've denuded them of all, um, of all, of all life or certainly life at the microbiological level. So we, we, we came to the farm so we could do all of these things. And people think that's kind of crazy. Like what does a, someone who makes a luxury handbag have? Why, why are we doing that? Why are we doing all of these things? And it goes back to the same core principles of the business. We do three things. We rescue, we transform, we donate. We rescue fire hose. We transform it into beautiful things. We give 50% of the profit to firefighters. With the, with the land here, we have rescued it. We're going to transform it into a high yielding farm 
that is treated like absolute gold dust. And we're going to make sure that the ideals behind the farm, the regenerative agricultural practices are spread, you know, far and wide because it's going to be completely, everything we do is going to be shared in an open way. You know, I'm not trying to crack some kind of level of production, patent it and sell it as a product. I, I know that we've got very few years left in which to have all of these kinds of revolutions, whether it be in food or fashion or agriculture. And I want to be a part of all of that change. No, I mean, that, that, that sounds incredible. I was, I was actually going to ask you, you know, why, why you decided to sort of, um, you know, run the, run the farm in the way that you are, but it, it sounds like, you know, it's, it's very similar to how you're running the business and, and, you know, why you're running the business in the way that you are. So I, I guess, you know, you're kind of, to, to me, it sounds like you're doing everything that you can. Is, is, is there any other ways that, you know, you're trying to make the business more sustainable, you know, through, um, perhaps the way that your website is hosted. I've, I've seen recently that you can choose to sort of host your website on um, servers which are running on green energy. Um, there's other things that you can do around sort of your advertising as well. Is is that something that you kind of look into at Elvis and Cressy as well? Yeah, we absolutely look at all of that in detail. So we look at, you know, how... I mean, we just we go into every level of detail. We make our own packaging from rescued materials. We don't sell on Amazon because the people who work there are not paid well enough and their relationship with the material world is just screwed up. So I think there's, there's the, from a digital side, we've started looking at, you know, how much the size of images we have on our site impacts the the use of energy when, when you're talking about downloads and things, so images and video, we're going into every single aspect of everything because, well, two things really, we're curious people and we have this, and we, and we don't want to leave the important issues of the day to other people to solve. I can't, I can't claim to be doing something good if I know deep in my heart that I haven't even tried, or if I know deep in my heart that I'm not. And the real power of our business isn't, you know, it's not in its size. We're a small business. The power that we have in our business is that, is that we, we do what we're, what we say we'll do. Not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a big difference between a lot of companies who make promises that they don't deliver on. I don't make promises you know, I deliver first and then I'll tell you about it. You know, this regenerative, this regenerative agriculture project, we're putting our vines, you know, that we're planting grapes. We hope to make wine by 2025. Um, between, <laughs> between, really cool. between, between now and then we're, our, our goal is to make the soil the healthiest soil around, but I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to make promises right now about what kind of wine we'll make. Because we're not do- we're not doing that yet. Can I can I bag all the- I can tell all I can tell you all I can tell you is it's not going to have any chemicals in it. And <laughs> when people talk about terroir, my terroir isn't going to include glyphosate. So that that I can promise you because you know that's not going to happen here. But I can't tell you anything. Is it going to be red? Is it going to be white? Is it going to be pink? Depends. 
It depends on <laughs> the weather. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can I bag you one of the first bottles though? Because I love myself a wine and yeah, to have a, a British made wine, which has come from such a, a sustainable and ethical background would be, would be awesome. So I can see like, I can see it in the future. There's kind of maybe a little bit of a following for like those first bottles of, um, I'm going to call them Elvis and Cressy wine and, then yeah, that would be really cool to to have one of those on my shelf would be uh, would be amazing. Um, so one of the things that you kind of I, I felt there was that maybe it what you're saying is it needs less words and and perhaps more action. Do you sort of find it frustrating when you know businesses are saying or even people are saying we're doing this that and you know the other and then perhaps not actually doing it? Is it is that a frustration for you? Oh, it's a massive frustration. I mean, I studied politics at university because I thought that was going to be the best route to, to, to create change. Um, through the study of politics, I realized that the pace of change in the political system is far too slow. And I think it's gotten even slower as we have uh, unfortunately gone down this really binary polarizing route um, where nobody wants to say anything, nobody wants to commit to anything, nobody wants to do anything because they they feel like they're going to be criticized for it forever. You know, I actually pity politicians because you can't, it, it, it's, it's incredibly difficult to be a conviction politician, to follow things through to the end. It's not, it's not, it's not easy. You can't change global economic reality. Um, but equally, you don't have to lie. You don't, you don't have to, to tell big, massive porky pies to get, populist votes, which is really something that we've seen happen throughout history, but really a lot in the last, I don't know, in the last, it feels like it's gotten worse than the last five or six years. But I didn't go, I didn't pursue politics because for me, I just want to get things done. And in a democratic political system, that is tough. You have to build coalitions of support behind what you do. Um, you have to wait, you have to be patient. And I I, I I just I don't like waiting and I am not patient. And when it comes to climate change, patience is a problem. It's, it, it, you know, thinking that, you know, there's all these quotes around, you know, the biggest mistake we can make is, is, is waiting for someone else to solve the problem. And, and it's, and it's true. It's extremely true. If you work for a fossil fuel company right now, I think you should quit. If, if all of the employees of fossil fuel companies walked out en masse, there wouldn't be a fossil fuel industry. Now, we would also, we would also have some big economic headaches because we're not prepared for the transition. But not everybody's going to, not everybody's going to quit all at once. But we need more people to leave. We need more people to go from traditional energy sources to renewable energy sources. We need people to make these financial commitments. I, I mean, on site here, we're, we're not going to have, we're having solar power, we're having heat pumps. Um, we won't use fossil fuels here. And that, that is a big investment. That's expensive. I could put in a gas boil, I could put in a gas boiler. It would be a heck of a lot cheaper, but I, but I can't do it because it's not the right thing to do. It, does it, does it, you know, if you, if you think about where, in your average new build, if you think about where the budget goes, uh, we we don't have laws in in this country yet. Yes, they are uh, eliminating gas boilers, which is great. 
but we haven't had for a very long time and still don't have proper legislation about really good insulation, really good quality windows, really good, um, uh, you know, ventilation systems, you know, that, that can scrub out the excess heat and retain it in the winter and, 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 and vice versa in the summertime. We, we don't have laws about that. You can still build really actually quite terrible houses with gas boilers and you shouldn't be able to do that. And, and in those houses, the priority is often on, you know, the kitchen and the bathroom, but, but is it on rainwater harvesting system? Is it on uh, a heat pump? No. And, and that is where it should be because I, uh, you know, as a, as someone who lives in these homes, you have to think about what the long-term cost is as the energy prices are rising. Now people understand that much more acutely than when energy prices are low, but we have to make so many changes in such a short period of time. To me, it doesn't make sense to not be involved on a day-to-day basis in making these changes, whatever they might be. And and we have we have taken this approach that we want to be involved in everything. You know, there's a lot of companies that think I'm going to do one thing and I'm going to be the best at it. I'm going to make you know I'm going to make the best shoelaces in the world, something like that. But for me. I'm, I'm, well, I'm too much of a magpie. I'm interested in way too many things. <laughs> I can relate and, to that. <laughs> and I'm, and I, and I love learning new things, you know, especially since we bought the farm, just learning. I could spend the rest of my life just on fungi and I wouldn't touch the sides of that world. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's, it's just mind blowingly cool. And, and it's fun to learn about especially when you can learn about it and be practically applying what you're learning literally the next day. Mm. So, so there's this for, for us and it's, it's the same goes for the raw materials we collect. You know, we can never know enough about fire hose. We can never know enough about leather. We can never know enough about parachute panels and tea sack waste. We're in a constant perpetual state of R and D. How can we, how can we transform these materials into their next best selves? How can we make sure that they generate in all senses of the word good? How can they support a a company that pays living wages to everyone, including apprentices? How can they support a company that wants everyone who works here to uh, be mentally strong, be physically strong, um, to, to be happy in the work that they do? How can these products make our customers feel like they are contributing to a circular economy to to something to a cause that gives back how can there's no end to the amount of good that we want to do so i suppose the, the the main role for me is how to coordinate and marshal all of the all of the activities that we do and make sure that we're achieving the most impact and the really interesting thing about that is is that is that money comes after that. So we, we, you know, it it is a business. It has to, it has to make money. Um, but the, but finance, finance for me is a discipline. If you can run an Excel sheet, you, you can, you can run cash flow. You can make it work. You have to price things effectively. You have to learn how to sell them and you have to make sure that you also know what your costs are. You don't have to keep your costs low. You just have to know what they realistically are. And then I price accordingly off the back of that. Absolutely. And and 
for us, the more we focused on impact, the more we focused on being good human beings as stewards of a business, the better the business has performed from a financial perspective. So when people think, oh, all this stuff we do is a cost, it's just not, it really isn't. All of the stuff that we do that's wonderful is why the business is a success financially. And I guess, you know, people really sort of buy into that story and people want to be part of something which is bigger and almost feel like they belong. So by, you know, buying a piece from Elvis and Cressy, they're actually, you know, allowing other people to sort of have a life, have a, you know, mental stability, have, um, you know, a living wage and they're actually contributing towards something which is, you know, it is a force for good. Um, but I guess one of the things, you know, it sounds as though there's a, there's a whole host of different things which are going into, you know, not only Elvis and Cressy and, and the farm, but, you know, your, your personal life very much seems to come into the business. Do you ever find it overwhelming? No, I think I would find it overwhelming if I had to split them up. So there, there, people often say, so, you know, what is your, how do you do have a work-life balance? And I don't, I don't, I'm alive and work happens as a part of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm very lucky that I get to do all of this with Elvis, who, you know, is my partner in life as well as in the business. You know, he's amazingly talented and logistically minded and funny. Um, and, and it, and we have such a good time. I, I would be very overwhelmed if I had to go to work somewhere else with someone else and do something that meant nothing to me. I think I would be overwhelmed by that. I think that would, that would just be impossible, especially after having had just the joy of working in the way that, that we have for the last, you know, 16, 17 years. This is, this is a dream, this life. This is impossible. This is incredible. This is a, a privilege. This is a joy to work like this. Um, it certainly, it certainly isn't overwhelming. No, so not in that way. No. Do you think that maybe? Um, I mean, th this might be sort of getting slightly too personal, but you know, the the business is almost an extension of your personal relationship. You know, you you talked about sort of work life balance, and I'm I'm sort of starting to learn a little bit more about the, the work-life balance and how I maybe feel like it's a bit of a myth. There is no necessarily work-life balance. It is part of your life. It's something that you have to accept. And if you're not enjoying it, then that's maybe where the work-life balance um, sort of theory comes from. So do you think that, you know, Elvis and Cressy, the business is actually just a pure extension of yours and Elvis's um, relationship together? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's exclusive only to us. And it doesn't mean that we should be the only people who get to work this way. I just think that we're very lucky to have, to have, well, we were very lucky to have found each other. We met just before we turned 25. Um, you know, we, we're very, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I we're just ridiculously lucky to have found each other because there isn't really someone else that I could be on this journey with that, you know, I just don't think it, it, I think everything that's good has come kind of from that. But, but then we have to sort of think, well, how does this, 
how can how do how can the rest of the world change and not everybody not everybody finds someone like Elvis you know not everybody gets to build up a company um but what you can do is you can find jobs that are challenging and interesting and if you're in a job that isn't challenging or interesting you know you can you can take on the opportunity to learn more to educate yourself now this this but even that even that is only available even that privilege is only available to actually a relatively small part of the human population yeah absolutely i mean it kind of comes from that um i guess i guess the sort of the way that we are as a society we we always have to make sure that we can you know pay our bills and you know make sure that we keep the wolf from the door so to speak but then obviously actually trying to then you know build your own future and build a future for yourself that you really want to not just live in but absolutely love and adore is is actually is is quite a privilege which i, I guess what you're actually doing with Elvis and Cressy is allowing those people that work with you to sort of hopefully be a part of that. You know, you, you want people who are passionate about the cause who, whose core values, you know, align with the business. So have you, you know, have you found it easy or have you found it difficult to find people like that or how have you found that? No, we haven't. I mean, we've, we've run over, over the last, well, since 2013, we've run an apprenticeship program, which has been fascinating because we've had a lot of young people come through the business and some of them stay because they absolutely love it and they're really good at it, good at it. But also some of them realize that they want to do something else. You know, we had someone who came uh, primarily to learn how to sew and be part of our crafts team. And, she, you know, she left to go to Japan and teach English. Oh, wow. Which, it, it, which is what she, which is, she made her much, much happier. We've had a lot of people come through that I think what's, what's great for me is seeing people come through and go either yay or nay. Like they're very, they come out with, this is where they want to stay, or actually they've discovered this isn't where they want to stay, but, but it helps them on their journey towards where they want to go. And we see that our, our role in the apprenticeship side is just to, help people explore whatever aspect of the business they can. So that, you know, if they want to learn more about the craft side or the marketing side or the customer service side or the, you know, invoicing finance side, they can learn whatever they want, whatever they choose to learn. And if that makes them want to stay great, if that actually makes them want to pursue something else, that's equally great. You know, what for, for us is important is to see people get closer in their own mind to what they want to do and to acquire the skills in order to do that. And it, none of this happens overnight. You know, we, if I think about what my twenties, my whole twenties, I was trying to work out who I was. By the time I was 30, I was like, okay, I know who I am. Now I just want to get good at that. So I spent all of my thirties getting the kinds of skills I thought I needed to be really good at achieving who I was. And now I'm in my forties this to me is an impact decade. I know who I am. I, I'm confident that I can do the things that I want to do. I have the right skills for it. And now I'm just doing it. And I, I just, I mean, who knows what's going to happen when I'm 50. I just think it's going to be, it's going to be insane. <laughs> the world's going to experience Cressy <laughs> in all of it's your gonna glory. Be, it's going to, we'll have wine by then. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be good. Yeah, that, that will be amazing. I mean, it, it's, 
it, th- what, what you've kind of just explained actually very much relates to something which I was told by um, a previous boss of mine, but slightly differently, actually. Um, so their philosophy was that your 20s are for learning and your 30s are for earning. And I guess that's kind of like a you learn about what you do in your 20s and then you implement it in your 30s. And that's when you get really good at it. Whereas you're saying that maybe... You may, you might not even know what you want to do in your twenties. And then in your thirties, you kind of go, yeah, I'll, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, this is what I really need to learn about. And then in your forties, you become that big, you know, implementer of maybe change or you, you start to found that business. And perhaps it's, you know, that's a, a nice message that it's, it's, it's kind of never, never too late to, um, start something new or, or change something that, that isn't quite right at the moment. Um, no, it really, it really isn't. And we're often, we all often celebrate really young entrepreneurs, but apparently the most successful entrepreneurs are people who start their businesses in their mid to late forties, which is, which is, which is really, I mean, I, we started too young then by that, by that <laughs> rationale, but I think it, I think it really is interesting to look at it from that perspective is that by the time you're in your mid forties, you really know, you really understand your relationship with risk. You really know what you can afford to do or not. And, and maybe it is a better time to go for it because you really do also know what your skills are by then. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there needs to be a new Forbes list of the 40 over 40 or the 50 over 50 kind of list rather than the 30 under 30 list. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. And, and perhaps, with that sentiment in mind, it might take some of that social pressure off, you know, young people who are, you know, frankly, maybe don't know what they want to do right now, but actually we need to reposition and take that sort of, take that pressure off them a little bit and say, well, actually, look, you've got all of the time in the world. You don't need to worry about that right now. Just find something that you enjoy, go out there, do it, and then start to figure out who you are. And if you find that out early on, then you're a really lucky person. Um, and I feel like, in, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm one of those lucky people. I, I kind of have found, you know, something which I'm really passionate about and want to get up every morning and, you know, want to go to work. And that's not running my own company. That's, that's aligning with a company that, um, has similar morals, has a similar moral compass as, as I do. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe I'm super lucky. And, and that all comes back to sort of, um, their morals have been sustainable. So I guess one of the sort of bringing it back to that sort of sustainability side, because I feel like we've gone off on a bit of a tangent about, um, people and which I think is incredibly fascinating. Um, but bringing it back to the sustainability and sort of, um, green and environmental side of things, obviously, that landscape is incredibly vast and there is so much going on within that space right now. Is there anything within that space which you are really excited about at the moment? Yes, I am. I am very excited about the whole transition to renewables. I'm excited about what that looks like. I'm excited about the potential of hydrogen I'm very excited about the what this is going to look like. There's an enormous amount of opportunity in that whole transition. If I 
if I was of an engineering bent and I was a young person, I would be diving into those kinds of things. That's what I'd want to learn about. That's what I'd want to really, really focus my attention on. I'm also really interested in the bioeconomy. So we have had, um, you, you know, we, when you, the, one of the best ways to get back to circularity is to, is to manifest everything from natural materials, which can be biodegraded and composted at the end of life. And there's huge potential there, you know, just from, there's a, there's a company that has a, a spray they can spray on cucumbers. That's just completely natural and biodegradable that works better than plastic film. I've heard amazing. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Ama- amazing because plastic film cannot be recycled. That, that particular plastic film cannot be recycled. So that's an unbelievable innovation and it's straight out of the, you know, the bio, the bioeconomy world, which is burgeoning. So I think those are the things that I'm really interested in. And I'm very, I'm bit, well, of course, the reason I came to the farm was bas- basically, you know, at the farm, we're part of the, that bioeconomy. And, and we get to see all of it in all its glory and all its wondrous complexity and to see how different plants interact with other plants and insects and, yeah, the, the, the whole root zone and fungi. It's just, it's just crazy how interesting it is. And I, and I, and it, and I feel for me, like it was just something I only started caring about three years ago. So, so yeah, I think it's really, really cool to have found something that I, you know, I'm going to be interested in for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's, and I found, and I found that in my forties. That's incredible. And it's, it's never too, it's never too late to start learning something new. Um, I recently tried to start playing the piano and I am terrible at piano but it's still something that's fascinating. I love listening to it. And it's, it's similar to what you're saying. It's, it's finding a passion, you know, and, and just diving into it and, and finding something new, which I think is, is really interesting. And it's good for our brain. It's good for our mental well-being. And, and I guess also if you're going to spend time outside, it's good for your physical well-being as well. Um, so I, you know, I guess one of the other questions, um, and I find this really fascinating is, um, what's the sort of best piece of advice that you've been given on being sustainable or more environmentally friendly slash conscious? Well, I don't know if it was advice, but it's certainly the, the phrase that I say to myself all the time when I was maybe in my early teens, I had this very influential grandmother on, on in terms of her influence on my life and her her children's lives and her and and my you know my sisters and brothers and cousins. Um, she and I don't know what context she said this in. It was probably an offhand comment, but she just came out. She said, "If you're capable, you're responsible." Oh, that's very and profound. It really is. And I say it to myself all the time because there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who don't have the capabilities because they don't have the opportunities. You know, they, they might not have, I've got, I've, I've had an unbelievable education. Um, you know, I'm a woman in Britain. I'm not living in a a country which doesn't value women as active members of the economy or of society. I have never lived in a country like that. So I've had all of those opportunities. I've, I've had, you know, had an amazingly loving family and, and, and a, now a supportive partner. 
and, and all of that support and all of those pillars and all of those foundations of my life make me capable. And that means that I've got some pretty serious responsibilities, you know, and, and the other way that I've often thought of it is that, is that I have debts that I will never be able to repay, you know, the debt of my education. I, I don't know how I, how I could ever conceivably repay the value that that has provided to me in my life. The debt of, you know, going camping as a kid and seeing a moose in the wild. Oh, I don't wow. Know how I repay that. No, I, I, it's just, how, how do you, what do you do? The only thing I can do is, is dedicate everything in my life every day, all the time to trying to make things better for everyone. That's it. That that's the, so if I'm capable, I'm responsible and that's what I've got to do. I've got to be responsible for as much as I can possibly put on my, on my shoulders. And, and actually when Elvis and I are carrying that, that burden together, it just become, it's just really fun. It's a fun, it's, you know, we were talking about being overwhelmed before it. It's not an overwhelming burden. It's a, it's something that we love to do because we're doing it together. And does it get frustrating sometimes? Absolutely. Do we get, do we get annoyed with some things sometimes? Absolutely. You know, do I write letters to MPs occasionally when I think politics are falling? <laughs> yes, I do. Of course. Um, you know, when the, the vote was, the, the vote was had that it was acceptable to, you know, keep putting sewage into the rivers. Was I happy about that? No. Did I, did I say something about it? Yes. So, but that's, but, but it's not that's a responsibility. That was, that was you acting on your responsibility, obviously. And, and I think that's, that's incredible. Like it, it's a very, um, profound thing to kind of, to say to someone that's young, um, and obviously we're all very impressionable when we're, when we're young. So to have something like that, which is, is going to be like a real force of good in somebody's life in their formative years, I think is, is incredible. And, and your grandmother sounds like she was an incredible lady. Um, so, and, and, but she knew that too. I think that's, <laughs> that's the most interesting thing is that she knew that when she, that when she said something like, you know, she could close us, she could close a conversation. And that was a conversation closer. And I, and I, I guess I would like to, I would love to be like that one day. I would love to be as wise as, as she was. And I, I would, I would certainly like people to take that idea on board. And I say it a lot in it, whenever I get the chance, I say that phrase because I think it makes people consider their lives in a different way, you know, how much capacity do I have for good? How much capacity do I have for sharing? How much loads? And we underutilize those capabilities all the time. And we do so at our, you know, collective peril. The amount of capability most people have to get involved in the climate crisis is way above what they actually, what they actually commit to. And I think that for a lot of people, they're afraid to, oh, well, I don't know anything about climate change or I don't know anything about biodiversity loss. How, how, what? but people just need to find their way in what's their way in. And it might be, it might be, um, through, you know, the, the food that you buy and, and what you bring into your household. It might be in how you choose to travel going forward. It might be in all of those things put together, hopefully. Uh, but I think a lot of people have much more capabilities than they think. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, I think you might have kind of in that, in that, um, 
little bit there. You might have kind of already answered my my last question. Um, and and that that was really going to be if you had um, one tip for our listeners, um, what would it be to be more sustainable? What what would your tip be? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe that is it. Actually, is that you you know think about what you could change and change it. And f- there are some really easy swaps that you can make in terms of the things that you buy or the places that you travel or how you get there. Um, you know, so many, so many people rely on car journeys for really, really short trips and where you could walk, where you could cycle. And, and in the process, you get more exercise and more vitamin D. Um, so that, so there's, there's a realignment possibly that most people just need to assess, okay, what's in my bin? What doesn't need to be in my bin anymore? What's in, what's in my life that doesn't need to be in my life anymore that actually uses an incredible amount of energy and fossil fuels? You know, can I th- turn the thermostat down from 20 to 17? Can, oh, there's just, there's so many things that you can do and there's no point in being overwhelmed by it. It's just a, it's a list to make a list, tick one off, you know, Get it, get it. I have a, I have a refillable coffee mug. And if I don't have that with me, I'm not allowed coffee. I'm not, I I don't have, I don't have public coffee in public if I can't use my own mug. I just don't have it. And actually that probably has made me snack less (laughs) when I'm doing sort of traveling and stuff like that. But there's just all kinds of things that anyone can do. You just have to make a list. And once you get into making a list, it's amazing to see how that list expands and expands and expands. And to me, it's amazing when you simplify your life, how much more contented you are. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm similar to you. Um, I've not quite gone to the same extent with the the coffee cup. Like, I I do have my reusable coffee cup and it's something that, you know, I'm trying to encourage more in our office. but if if perhaps one of us has forgotten it, it's not that coffee's out of bounds, but the coffee's going to cost them more money. So we'll have um, like a little jar which we'll put money into um, if we've forgotten our coffee cup. So it basically means that the coffee becomes you know fifty p extra for every for every coffee that you have without your cup. So it's like an incentive to make sure that you've washed your coffee cup and make sure that you've actually got it with you. Um, yeah. So it's like a swear jar. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So it's, it's almost taxing them for being less environmentally friendly, but without limiting their, um, ability to have a coffee. Um, and then we can, you know, we can put that money into, you know, other things, whether that be environmental, um, initiatives or whether that be, look, you know, you got better and actually now there's not actually that much money in the jar. Let's just all go and have another another coffee in our reusable cup so it's i think it's about trying to influence that change steadily um and it's it's a it's a really nice thing to do like i'm trying trying my best to try and move away from single-use plastics um and i, and I did a post about this on linkedin um and worked out i think it's something like if one percent of the adult population between 25 and 80 ditched single-use plastics for their shampoo conditioner and face wash we'd save 12.9 million plastic bottles from going either into landfill or into our um sort of scrupulous or um 
perhaps slightly broken recycling system here in the UK. So, and that's just like 1% of the 25 to, I think it was 25 to 80. And that was based on some very basic maths that I just worked out in my head and wrote down on a piece of paper. And I think when we start thinking about it in those ways, if you realize that you can be in that 1%, then you, you start to realize that you can, you can have a genuine impact and you can make a real difference, which I think is, is amazing. And, and I really liked, you know, the way that you talked about, um, you know, being responsible and, and, and actually, you know, making those implements, implementations and changes and, and making that list because, I'm a lover of lists and I love ticking things off. So maybe I need to write all of these things down that the other things that I could do and then start ticking them off slowly, you know, one by one. Um, so yeah, but that, that was kind of, you know, my, my last question. Um, and it's, it's been inspiring and really lovely to, to speak with you on the podcast. Um, I think that the farm sounds amazing and, I can't wait to, to see all of the, the updates either through LinkedIn or, you know, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to see the farm and, and what you guys are doing and, you know, maybe pop down and, and see what's going on because I think it, it sounds amazing and, and it, it sounds like a, a true circularity, which I'd, I'd love to see how it works and actually sort of be ingrained in it and, and yeah, I guess just experience that. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was amazing to speak with you and, and thank you so much for, for joining me on, on the podcast today. And, and I hope the rest of your week is, is amazing. Thank, thank you very much. And yes, you'd be welcome at the farm anytime. Amazing. Thank you so much, Cressy. Have a, have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't already, you can subscribe and you can also listen to previous episodes below. And if you are interested in getting involved, drop me a message. It is paul at somewhatsustainable.co.uk. Cheers.